This week on the Science of Politics, how police communities mobilize politically. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Protests over police brutality have stormed the nation, informing white Americans about racial injustice. But how do racial minorities in highly policed communities think about political action and mobilize to fight unfairness in the criminal justice system when they're facing force and indignities that often lead to withdrawal? Today, I talked to Veshla Weaver of Johns Hopkins University about her work on the Portals Project, which has led to several journal articles. She finds that people in over-policed neighborhoods have complicated but negative attitudes toward police. They're often motivated for change, but not always through traditional politics. I also talked to Hannah Walker of the University of Texas about her new Oxford book, Mobilized by Injustice. She finds that criminal justice experience can mobilize people if they perceive injustice, and she sees some similarities in the ways that Latinos are mobilized by the immigration enforcement system and African Americans by over-policing. Weaver's work on the Portals Project is an innovative way to listen to people in police communities who don't always get heard, and I asked her to give some examples of the things she's learned from them. In about 2015, my colleague Tracy Mears at the law school at Yale and Amar Bakshi, who runs Shared Studios and had designed something called a portal, began to collaborate. And portals, for just a bit of backdrop, are gold shipping containers that have been repurposed to connect communities that are physically distant oftentimes in different zip codes, sometimes across the country, to each other. And when you come inside one of these gold boxes, it connects you with another person, a a perfect stranger, through audio-visual technology. Full body, you can see and interact interact with the person in, in real time. And what's so crucial about this technology is it allowed us to let communities who that had long histories of police violence and uprisings against police brutality and saturation policing to connect with one another, to discuss, you know, mothers connected with other mothers who had lost sons to police violence or gang violence. And we asked them nothing else but to just discuss police and what policing was like in their communities. And they spoke with one another um, for about 20 minutes, and we recorded these dialogues, which became part of the long oral history of what Black life is. And and it wasn't exclusively a Black sample, but we, we really had mostly um, highly policed communities with some some variation, and I guess you know you had asked what's what's the biggest thing that we learned. I think what we at a at a very broad level is that some of the some of the things that we tend to think of as concerning as threats to democracy for among political scientists, we began to understand that the, these communities. The experience of subjugated people were not aberrations to the existing frameworks about our democracy, uh, ones in need of correction. But when we really listened to their lived experience, we found that their observations and um, critiques and ideas of democratic life weren't mere aberrations, but that they so challenged the existing frameworks as to strain them. And so we began to think that this was a rebuttal to traditional decades-long understandings of American democracy. And we allow them in this work, we allow their perceptions of how government is actually oriented to them and their communities to inform the existing frameworks and show their limits and to challenge and rewrite them. So for example, most of, of... the work in American politics is sort of, well, this is what the laws are, and not really, well, how are these laws lived from the vantage point of what those institutions aren't just meant to do and are stated to do in their formal embodiments, but one, but from what they actually do do in people's lives. And so we began to reimagine, we began to um, reposition our orientation to the portal's dialogues in a way that their voice 
their voices and theorizing of American democracy were as important as written law in understanding what that democracy actually consists of. And, and very few people, to our knowledge, have done that. It's one of the problems in our discipline is that we've done little to engage the perspectives of those whose citizenship is being distorted. And the consequence of doing it this way, the consequence of this deficit is that we know very little about how people in highly policed communities with long histories, multi-generational histories of police violence characterize the state in their own words and how they respond to it. How do they navigate uh, what they illustrate as the confines of democracy? How do they resist it? How do they attempt to redefine it? And so that's the kind of broad view. The more specific view of what we learned is oftentimes, you know, they would pose a challenge. They would say things like things that would lead us to believe that their lived experience bore very little resemblance to the way we typically construct either in the media or in popular, the popular imagination or in academic circles, American democracy. Walker's new book finds that people with criminal justice and policing contexts can be mobilized to participate more if they develop a sense of injustice. The book is called Mobilized by Injustice. It examines the impact of experiences with the criminal justice system on political attitudes and behaviors, and where much of the existing literature finds that all kinds of experiences with the criminal justice system lead to a withdrawal from politics. I chart out the path by which individuals may actually become mobilized by those same experiences. And so, you know, like other folks, I don't find I don't find much in the way of voting. A lot of the literature that finds people become demobilized focuses on on the outcome of voting. Um, and I find that when people become mobilized, we actually see that mobilization express itself in other ways, in particular through doing things like protesting, signing petitions, attending city council meetings and that sort of thing. So if the question is, under what conditions do people become mobilized? The answer is in the title. They become mobilized when they um, view their experiences through the lens of injustice and externalize those experiences and hold the belief that they or someone that they, lo- they love have been targeted on, on the ra- basis of race, ethnicity, or class. And I think just the other couple things that I want to say about the big findings from the book is that I find that this is especially true for folks who have what I call proximal contact. So not necessarily those who have personally experienced incarceration, um, although we do see mobilization among those folks as well, but for those who are the friends and family members uh, of individuals who have experienced some type of involuntary interaction with the criminal justice system, those folks are especially likely to become uh, mobilized as a consequence of watching their loved one negotiate the system. And then I think the last thing that I wanna say is just about the issue of race. So within the context of the book, I compare and contrast the experiences of whites to blacks and Latinos. And I find that across all three of these racial groups, when individuals arrive at a sense of injustice around the criminal justice system, they have the capacity to be mobilized. But what I find are differences in the in the frames that people employ to make sense of their experiences as unjust. She finds that criminal justice can degrade people, but it can also mobilize them. The big departure is that rather than finding that people become alienated and withdraw from withdraw from politics, they can become mobilized. They can become mobilized. So that's kind of the punchline in terms of the major departure. I so where is it broadly correct and where is it wrong? And so I think that the thing that that early some of that recent literature has done for us is it's really highlighted in a necessary way the tremendous capacity of the of the carceral state to degrade and to demobilize, but the relationship is also more dynamic than we might at first think um, from reading the existing literature. And so it's not so much that the existing work is wrong as it is that it's an incomplete picture of how a variety of people from a variety of circumstances become mobilized or become politicized by their experiences. Weaver says these are part of a welcome political science wave to study the role of criminal justice. Yeah, I mean, when I first began uh, working on a few of us scholars back then were calling the carceral state, it was it, it was pretty rare within political science. You know, decades had passed since James Q. Wilson had been writing about the police. 
there were uh, there was this there, there was a there was an orientation within our field towards representative institutions and everyday kind of street level bureaucracies were very much on on the margins and i was told many times you know this is are you sure you don't want to go into you know criminal justice or sociology or or some other field but a few of us, uh, myself, Marie Gottschall, Keisha Middlemoss, Kalila Brown-Dean, Lisa Miller, Tracy Birch, Megan Francis, we started thinking about policing and criminal justice as very much important for understanding citizenship, for understanding how government is oriented to citizens for understanding uh, political behavior. Um, so my book with Amy Lerman is all about how encounters with criminal justice actually reshape uh, uh, political behavior among people who, for whom this is a, a direct experience. And so we began pushing on this. And I think over time, the field has begun to take more stock and realize that this is an important aspect, particularly in race class subjugated communities that, that, you know, I mean, Joe Sauce and I wrote a piece called the police are our government, right? That this is very much a, a central way that Americans um, come into contact with government and, and particularly in, in certain communities. And so we started pressing on this idea, and now in our field, there are a number, particularly of young and up-and-coming scholars who are asking questions about, you know, police power and police unions and the history and American political development of, of uh, uh, the carceral state. And it's really refreshing to see, and I think it's going to receive a major boost by the fact that we are living in a moment that showcases uh, all of these questions, right? How do people protest injustice? How do people respond to police incursions in their neighborhoods? How do they uh, mobilize uh, uh, together? How do they create alternate uh, forms of safety? All of these questions are very much alive. And I'd say that we had some, you know, I kept. Uh, um, you know, sort of using Larry Bartels's work as as a bit of a of a foil here, because I think a lot of the questions in our discipline have been around, you know, operating along one dimension, um, attention or inattention from government, and so, you know, the 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 concern is that many citizens don't have their policy preferences registered in policy outcomes or even the Suzanne Mettler story that government does a bunch of good things, but citizens don't get to see it. And we kept saying, you know, this storyline is mostly right if you completely neglect uh, race class subjugated communities. Um, uh, but preference responsiveness questions about democracy's health were, you know, housed within a polity that was increasingly turning to and deepening its commitment to and expanding what Joe and I have called the second face of the state, by which we mean, you know, coercion and surveillance and regulation and predation and discipline. And so we began to push on this idea of the liberal democratic model being this extremely salutary view of the American state. And that once we take the perspectives coming out of highly policed communities where involvement with government is not this or greater connection to government is not this unalloyed good supposed by liberal framings. We argued in that piece, and I'm quoting our piece here, if one's aim is to understand state powers, to govern citizens, to regulate their behaviors, to revoke their freedoms, to redefine their civic standing and impose violence on them, we had to get away from this scholarly preoccupation with imagining a government as one that only registers preferences and distributes uplifting material benefits. And we needed to really go deep on understanding um, the state's second face, which was the more prominent face in many of these communities. And Walker says she was inspired by her own work and prior research, finding some signs of hope among the protests. Well, I started working on issues related to the criminal justice system prior to grad school 
in particular, I worked for a short time with the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, and they were focused on issues related to prisoner reentry. And so in working with them, I worked with them on a variety, in a variety of different ways. I can help them with their direct services. I helped with legal assistance uh, and that sort of thing. And I also did some data collection and analysis for them. And so from that experience, I always knew that I would work on issues related to criminal justice. And I came into grad school with that focus. I was, and I started working on this project very early on. I was inspired and compelled by uh, Weaver and Lerman's uh, 2010 APSR article that sort of set the agenda for the study of criminal justice and political science. And so, but I, and so I was starting to think about communities and the more the broader impact that the criminal justice system can have on communities. And I anticipated, based on everything that I'd read in the literature, that I would have that once I started doing my own data collection, that I would have I would also find that family members, uh, people with proximal contact, um, were also demobilized. That's what the literature suggests. I had the opportunity to collect data in like my first year of grad school. We had the Washington. I graduated from the University of Washington. And we had the Washington Poll there, and so. I was able to collect data at that time, and I had this really unexpected finding where proximal contact was associated with heightened participation. And so that's kind of what launched the whole project. I spent a lot of time trying to validate the finding, um, trying to break it, trying to see if it held across various different types of samples, different types of people. And in the middle of doing that work, uh, the uprising in Ferguson um, happened, and there was a wave of protests across the country. And the stories that were shared with me by activists uh, as I went about doing my dissertation research were very urgent. And so in the post-grad school stage, I was very, very focused on taking the dissertation, which I'd written as a book, and just polishing and polishing and polishing, finding a larger frame uh, for the stories that I was trying to, to tell, but also feeling that really strong sense of urgency that this was a set of stories uh, that needed to, to be out there, that needed to find their way off my, off my desktop and into, into uh, the hands of the public. Weaver's data enables very different kinds of information than surveys or interviews, and I wanted you to hear the texture of what her participants said. The portals were staffed by community leaders and activists and portal curators who were deeply involved in the programming, deeply involved in the, in the research, deeply involved in the communities in which we housed the portals. And they would have an iPad survey there right before somebody wanted to have a discussion. And the survey would ask some of the things that you might find on a traditional, you know, survey. So how much do you trust the police? Um, always, sometimes, you know, most of the time, never, that kind of thing. And uh, so we can see, okay, this is a person who says that he, you know, always trusts the police or never trusts the police, or he has some confidence in that the police uh, do their jobs well. And then you can read the transcripts. And what happens in the transcripts is there's a variety of different ideas that come to bear. Sometimes you can see somebody who has a conversation with one person and then they stay in the box and another person comes in after the other person in, on the other side leaves and they have another conversation and you can see how their conversation uh, uh, picks up on and sometimes even amends some of the, the some of the ideas they had in the past conversation so one of the ideas that comes out very prominently is something that we've called distorted responsiveness so on a typical survey uh, you might have people saying well yeah i i have some confidence in the police to do their job well well how do you interpret that uh, then you read a transcript and this is what you might see. This is a man in Milwaukee, and he says, when it's like the police is, well, shit, I'm not fitting to call the police. We fitting to shoot back at this, at somebody coming to my house, someone trying to rob my house. Fuck calling the police. They're not going to do nothing. They damn near probably going to show up late anyway, you know? And then his conversation partner in Chicago says, yeah, yeah, my building got ran into. It took, you know, it took half an hour for the police to get here. Police drove by. I tried to stop them. They said, oh, someone else will respond to that. You know, and this is Milwaukee. And that's like, you're not doing your job. That's not doing your job. It's crazy because someone could get shot. Someone could get shot right now. I could witness someone getting shot right here, right now. I can call the police for emergency, whatever the case may be. I could. She's going to ask me several questions before she even send an officer. She's going to ask me, what time is it? Do you know his name? What transpired? Damn. What's really hard here is when someone does get killed, and then this is um, Chicago 
talking. They don't move the body until a coroner comes. And sometimes the person lays there for three or four hours. And oftentimes it's right in front of their house. It's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. And then he goes on to say, we've had someone out there for up to six hours. No. And a lot of times there's this perception that police will take a long time to come for emergencies, but they will be Johnny on the spot. They'll be extremely aggressive when they show up for very small quality of life, minor infractions. And that comes up in the same conversation. So on a survey sample, you might have somebody saying, well, yes, the police are slow to respond, but you don't also ask them, well, how do they respond when they respond? Well, when they come, they're coming for something little. They're coming for weed. They're coming for selling loose cigarettes. They're coming for something that doesn't imperil our lives. And so we need to begin to theorize policing as both, right? That, that, that these complaints, these grievances are two sides of the same coin, right? I'm not, I'm in this free fall of abandonment when I call the police for help, but they're sort of always hemming, hemming me up for small trivialities that don't actually affect anything in, in our lives. Another thing that comes up a, a lot, and, and this is hard, Matt, because... <laughs> There are hundreds of ideas and we've spent a lot of time coding these, you know, thousands of pages of transcripts for both prominent ideas in political science, but then also ideas that we felt were cropping up that aren't measured in surveys, things that we are, are now theorizing anew so that we can get surveys in the discipline to begin to ask some of these prominent framings and frameworks and ideas and responses that people are having. So another example, I mean, this is a very typical one in, in political sciences. You know, you might have somebody that we would consider a non-participant in political science, somebody who doesn't participate in politics. They don't really call their governor or senator. They don't necessarily, you know, vote at election time. And yet, if you read the transcripts, it's very clear that people are participating in, in, in other kinds of ways that we might not be picking up on. So I'll just give you, you know, another example. This is a conversation from Baltimore. And, you know, the person says, you know, you have to, you have to start one person at a time, one house at a time, one kid at a time. And I'm trying to open a nonprofit daycare where I give back to the community once a week for a meal and once a month for a birthday party. And then feed the police, the firemen, the teachers, and any other engaged adult in the neighborhood who's concerned about young people's welfare. And that way, when the police come, they can say, oh, that's not a criminal, that's April's son. Or, oh, she's not a criminal, that Mar that's Marianne's niece. And there were other efforts like this, I mean, very subtle, but very much threaded throughout the narratives of very specific ways that people were getting involved in, in small and large ways to confront safety deprivation in the community, to confront over-policing and aggressive policing or police that didn't understand them and their struggles and didn't understand the community and wanted to, you know, and came in and sort of would arrest before getting to know the people. So there's things like that. And, and we started to track them. We started to, you know, code them up and look for them specifically. But this, you know, that person might be seen as somebody who doesn't get involved in city politics, doesn't get involved in calling their representative when they have a problem. And yet they're involved in, in, in other kinds of ways. I wanted to give you just one more example. I think that one of the things that Gwen Prowse and I and Tracy Mears and, and Spencer Piston, who's involved in this as well, have been thinking about a lot is youthful political socialization. So a lot of times in our portals data, um, if you, when we asked people in the survey, you know, what was their earliest encounter with police? It was often under the age of uh, 14. So the majority of participants said their first, you know, encounter with police, their first time being stopped, uh, asked what they were doing, told to move on, brought down to the station, uh, what have you, was, you know, at the tender age of, you know, 12, 13, 14. And I think that's uh, something we don't know in the larger, just beyond political science, in the larger 
policy world is that these are incredibly early encounters. And one thing Phil Goff has shown so well is that once you have an encounter uh, like this, you're more likely to have another and that these encounters can themselves be criminogenic. And, and so his work was finding that, you know, people who d- had not engaged in crime but had a police stop were more likely than those who didn't experience a police stop to then later offend and to later engage in delinquency. Okay, so this example, a lot of people talked about childhood. A lot of people talked about um, what it was like to raise kids and, and help prepare them for police surveillance. And this is somebody in Milwaukee saying, they just need stuff for our young people to do besides always categorizing them as being bad. They're bad, they this, they this, they that. It was some man, um, he had an abandoned school. He put some basketball courts up, made them out of wood and put them on the playground. Police circle the playground like something fitting to happen, something fitting to happen. I can ride down this particular street and I... I will see a squad car at least six days out of the week out there waiting for our kids to, you know, have a basketball squabble argument or something so they can jump on the playground and arrest somebody. So they're sitting there waiting to arrest them for no particular reason. And to me, like the young men, you know, okay, they wear black hoodies, okay, whatever. They're wearing hoodies. I don't mind that. But y'all think every boy or young lady that walked down the street with a solid black hoodie on is doing crime. No, they're cheaper. Look into the hoodies. Black hoodies are cheaper. So people don't realize black hoodies are us. It's just to say that there was a lot of conversations about police being, you know, a lot of conversations between parents worrying about their children, a lot of conversations of people who were in their early adulthood talking about memories of being, you know, uh, stopped by police for walking in small groups, stopped for by police because they happened to have the same color of shirt on, and so police assumed they were in a gang. And some of these, to me, were, you know, the most painful uh, to read because it, it was very clear in them that that was a defining moment of childhood, that it was a moment where they knew and quickly gleaned what it was to be a Black child and how they needed to move and what adjustments and precautions they needed to take in order to stay safe from police. So, you know, we we would hear extraordinary efforts people would take. If If I added them all up, it's probably in the hundreds of the various different ways that people would change their hair or dress or movements, making their bodies smaller, um, crouching while they walked, hunching over, not carrying certain things, not going through certain neighborhoods, deciding certain times of day not to be out and about, which of course, again, raises very troubling things for a democracy where most of us assume that you should be out be able to to be out, that that being out without your ID on is not against the law, right? Walker's data included interviews with activists, and she reflected on the values of each method. The Portals Project gives us a deep, rich look at the way that members of race-class subjugated communities experience politics. And I think that the the samples that are collected by Portals probably do a better job of capturing marginalized people than do sur- than do surveys certainly and even my interviews were I I collected my interviews um, by starting with connecting with people who are already plugged into activist organizations and then built snowball samples out from there so I was looking for activists to try to help me understand the quantitative data and so what that means is I don't have a lot of people who are who are uh, not not mobilized within the context of the interviews. And so uh, the Portals Project gets around that issue. What my data do is demonstrate that the experience of being motivated for change and to change the criminal justice system is, I think, widespread. But what I think that my data don't do and what my book doesn't do and um, what, what the Portals Project can help us with is, and other projects like the Portals Project, is... They can help us understand and articulate just exactly what kind of change people, and in particular members of race class subjugated communities, are looking for. 
And they can help us start to think about and examine, which I don't do at all in my book, how those demands may vary across subgroups. And I think this is also the place where I would also, we, we, I would also have some skepticism about the limits of white solidarity around this issue. I think that what the portals, the interviews from the portals project do is they illuminate this, uh, very much this desire to have police kind of get out of, get out of their communities. Weaver's work did find a lot of withdrawal from politics, but also some grounds for organizing. One of the biggest frameworks that we began to theorize out of the portals was a concept that we wrote about in the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics. And this is a piece with myself and and Gwen Prowse and Spencer Piston. Much of my early work was about, you know, political withdrawal, was about how custodial citizenship and having encounters with the more punitive side of the state led people to decide not to engage in political life, dropping rates of voting, you know, uh, they were less likely to say that government cared what they thought. They had low levels of, of political efficacy, low levels of trust in government. And so we theorized that, you know, this, this was a bad thing for democratic life, right? When you have people who disengage, um, particularly people whose grievances should be heard the loudest. And of course, that was not meant to say that, that highly policed communities don't protest, engage in, in collective action. And I'm glad that you're interviewing, you know, Hannah Walker uh, as well, because I think her work is is excellent on this point. But in this new piece in uh, where I talk about, where we talk about collective autonomy, what we were finding is an impetus to um, withdraw from immediate, you know, um, an active detachment from police to increase their their level of safety and autonomy and dignity. And we were theorizing this detachment as a political response. So it wasn't a passive process. It wasn't a, well, I'm just going to, I don't have time or money or, you know, the inclination to get involved in politics. But in our conversations, they reveal a pattern of staying indoors, avoiding being in groups, changing some of their mundane routines, and calling on their family or neighbors for help instead of enlisting the police. And so, you know, one person says, I don't care how many black cops are on the force. That don't make no difference. They're the ones that doing it. But like I said, you know what I mean? I avoid them because I know I ain't got, got no chance going up against them. I know I ain't got no power. Another, you know, middle-aged woman in Chicago says, the police, they got badges, they can do whatever they want. And it don't make no sense. And they can harass you for no reason. I don't have my ID on me right now. I'm not doing nothing. And then she's paraphrasing police. I don't want you standing on this spot. You got to move. That's why I don't even hang out no more. There's no point in hanging out. I stay in my house every day. But at the same time, as we see some of this kind of what we call, you know, strategic aversion, we also see that it doesn't have exclusively alienating consequences these kinds of staying to myself go hand in hand with an urgent desire to come together as a neighborhood, to come together as a, a racial group. And sometimes these aspirations coming together and getting unified and knowing our history and controlling our narratives were paired with concrete ways that they labored to protect youth or to deny power to the police. So they often emphasize collective community defense and protection and collective guardianship. Oftentimes they demand, you know, they make demands to shift power and authority to communities. Sometimes they point at the limits of, of descriptive representation. As the quote that I just read you, we have police, but we don't have power. And so there was also this expression of we need to stick together. We need to, you know, let me let me just read you this one. Um, the person says, we are their enemy. It doesn't matter if it's a good boy, a bad boy, an old man, a young woman, a baby. It's a war zone. So they need to leave. How did we used to do it in the old days when something happened in the house? Something happened in the hood. We know who to speak to. We know who to go to. Now we got to have the police who's a third party that don't know us, don't know the community. And we trusting them? Sometimes this came out uh, even more explicitly 
as a, you know, we need to uh, police ourselves, right? We need to make sure that people in the community are staying safe. We know best how to handle uh, safety and protection in our communities. So how is this mapping onto, you know, what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter and with defund the police campaigns? What you hear in the transcripts, partly because it predates this newest wave of protests, is you don't hear people saying explicitly the phrase defund the police. What you do hear is things like we we pay their salaries and we're paying the city settlements so we can we can take our money elsewhere. We need to to um, stop paying into this system, that kind of thing. That's a defund kind of argument. Um, we need to invest in the things that are going on in our community that are that are good, that are um, helping to protect. Walker's book was also innovative in comparing Latinos' experience with immigration enforcement with Blacks' experience with policing. The question that I started with is how are Latinos uniquely targeted by the system in way and targeted for contact by law enforcement in ways that are different from their sort of status as people of color in ways that are different from black Americans. And so what I really keyed in on as like the key mechanism by which this group is uniquely targeted is it has to do with it has to do with immigration, but more specifically, that has to do with the expansion of interior enforcement, immigration enforcement, whereby local police actually become engaged in the business of implementing immigration enforcement. And that sort of marrying of immigration enforcement with law enforcement, with law enforcement, local law enforcement, allows for the widespread and specific targeting of, of Latinos. And so rather than thinking about analogizing the experiences of, of Blacks and Latinos, I think it's for me more useful to think about how the sort of machinery, the carceral machinery, machinery is constructed such that it leads to unequal outcomes across racial subgroups. So is, insofar as we're thinking about, you know, how our experience is different for Latinos or similar to, I think that in addition to the cleavages of race and class, uh, Latinos contend with this added cleavage of, citizen, uh, of citizenship. The thing that's really consistent across Latinos and Black Americans, and this is also true for white, white folks as well, is the sort of strong mobilizing capacity of proximal contact. Whether you have a loved one who's be, who is targeted because they're an immigrant or because they lack documentation status, or you have a loved one who's targeted because they're phenotypically black, or you have a loved one who becomes caught up in the system because who's, who's white but becomes caught up because of their class status, that sort of the power of that relational tie to compel people to action is really, really strong and consistent. And then I think the last thing that I just want to say on this is that with respect to Latinos and their experiences with the criminal justice system, much more work is needed and the data is particularly lacking in this area. She found multiple ways people become politicized by seeing injustice. I don't come down hard on one avenue versus another. I think it's highly individualized and, and people can come, come to the place of externalizing their experiences via a variety of different avenues. There are circumstances that make it more likely than others. I think it really helps to have supportive narratives within one's community and also supportive narratives around one's group membership, right? So the Black community has a very, they have a very strong narrative that connects the criminal justice system to previous iterations of racial control. And um, it's one that connects the criminal justice system backwards to, to uh, Jim Crow and to slavery. And so that's an example of a narrative that comes, that's based around one's group membership and that comes from within one's community that can help people understand their experiences as not being necessarily about what they've done specifically, but about who they are as people. External events can also help precipitate this process, like the ones that the events that we're experiencing now. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there within the context of this particular um, moment, but when there are highly politicized and highly publicized instances of police brutality, that can help shift the way people think about their own experiences with the criminal justice system. And I think, and so I think that the task usually is to help people connect their personal commitments, again, if we're thinking about uh, proximal contact, to broader politics, politics, 
How does the thing that I'm doing now to try to help my brother just navigate the criminal justice system, for example, how does that fit into a larger sort of political narrative? And community organizations can help politicize those that are harmed. The organizations that have the potential to be the most powerful in this context are ones that are expressly political and ones that are actively engaged in organizing the community. So I think some work that we can think of that is really, really helpful for understanding these processes and how political or community-based organizations can um, help recover civic membership for this group is um, Hari Han's work. She's got a couple of books, Move to Action is one of them. And the second one that I found very useful is How Organizations Develop Activists. And so she draws a distinction in her work between mobilizing people and organizing the community. And so mobilization is what we think about when we think about political parties or campaigns going around and doing door knocking to talk to people about their candidate and try to get them to either register or turn out to vote. And that's sort of like a one shot deal. And it's it's how campaigns and sort of engage the most the people they think are most likely to turn out and try to get those people to actually turn out. And that's a different set of activities than organizing the community. And so there are other community-based organizations that are actively involved in the day-to-day and usually, I think, very often address a wide cross-section of issues that are important to the community. And so those are the kinds of organizations that ha- I think have the opportunity to be the most powerful and help you know, build the kinds of skills and alternative resources in marginalized communities that can help people overcome some of those other more traditional socioeconomic barriers to participation. Black Lives Matter shows that perceptions of injustice are out there and are now building. So in certain ways, and not by accident, the, right, the rise of the Black Lives, Matter, Black Lives Matter movement is evidence of what I sort of suspected, which is that there are a lot of very large number, number of people who are impacted by the system across all racial groups. And that in and of itself, the sheer numbers of people who have a personal or relational connection to the criminal justice system raises the possibility that we could have a real and new uh, social movement on our hands. And so I say like not by accident because I was writing the book and starting to work on the project in 2014 as uh, Black Lives Matter was starting to gain more traction. I think the reception has changed by the, the reception by the media and the public has changed because of a variety of like a confluence of factors. If BLM really started to gain traction in 2014, then that means we've experienced six years of ongoing and highly publicized instances of anti-Black police brutality. We've also experienced, in addition to that, four years of fraught government governance. I think it's probably the, the, the most neutral thing I can say. It's fraught. And now we're also three months into a, uh, three months into a pandemic. And we've also observed that fraught govern- government do an arguably terrible job at addressing issues related to the pandemic. And also we know that also issues related to systemic racism have been raised uh, again and again um, as a consequence of the, of the pandemic. So I think the media and the public have changed in their reception because we are in, in, in exceptional, we're living through exceptional times. Weaver also sees the Black Lives Matter movement as evolutionary with salience built over time. Those earlier protests were in some ways they primed the frameworks that have now taken center, you know, that are now a a centerpiece of the political demands being made, which I think is very interesting. You know, so I don't think, I think there's a lot of people in the media that say, well, gosh, the the, the reaction is just so uh, different today. It's so, you know, not of a piece with the reaction to the Ferguson and Freddie Gray protests and yet, I don't think, I think that the reaction is different because of those earlier protests, because those earlier protests set the stage for and, and really cemented or helped to, to uh, create a foundation for the frameworks that we now see. And so now, you know, we're reaching this kind of inflection point, um, but we've had four to five years of a very high salience of race, inequality, oppression, and supremacy. I would say not just the the, uh, anti-policing movements, but Charlottesville, the Me Too movement, the structural violence uh, uh, that has been in our air and discourse since the pandemic, 
And so I, I don't think that we should sort of set up this dichotomy of, well, the, the, everything, you know, the, the protests are getting such different coverage now. Yes, of course they are. But part of why the scope of demands today is what it is, is because in that earlier moment, we had a lot of Black poor political organizing that emerged, not just Black Lives Matter, but you had, you know, incipient groups popping up all over the country, including one that we um, was very involved in our uh, portal project, which is the Let Us Breathe Collective in Chicago. So you had these groups popping up all over the place that were developing an abolitionist program. And so I think part of why we see that the demands are far more radical today, taking on police power and institutions writ large, rather than focusing their aim on specific actors, rather than focusing on specific incidents of misconduct, but rather towards policing as a system that perpetuates subjugation, that perpetuates predation, um, that gives rise to anti-democratic features. So I would say that those earlier protests did give us the critical foundation for socializing young protesters, for early Black political organizing, for building attention, for creating the context of the grievances and racial injustice frameworks that we now are, are hearing. Walker cautions that the protests don't necessarily mean voting will also be mobilized. I don't think that because we see a rise in protesting that that means we're and we see that process at work that we won't also see people go to the polls but i will confess that this air this sort of area the difference between voting and other types of participation is the least well developed within the context of the project there's a lot more work to do there I can offer some arguments as to why we would see people protest, even if we don't see the needle move on voting. And I also think it's important to note that in my work, I don't find that voting is negatively affected by experiences with the criminal justice system. I just see that it's that it's not affected, and that instead, when we see people be mobile, when we see people mobilize around these issues, they, that expresses itself in other ways. And she finds whites are also affected, but is skeptical about their level of racial understanding. The first thing to note is that I think part of what we're observing and what I observed in my, my research is that white people are affected by the criminal justice system, too. This is not an issue that, that affects Black Americans exclusively, although the consequences for Black Americans are are, are much deeper than they are for white Americans. And as we also know, the, you know, the criminal justice system and criminal justice policies were sort of built around trying to maintain, uh, maintain racial hierarchy. So uh, we have to hold the sort of racialized political causes and consequences of the criminal justice system at our center. But we can do that while also recognizing that white people are affected, uh, affected by the criminal justice system too. They are not um, particularly adept at understanding the nuances of race. At least that's what I find in my interviews. It doesn't mean that they deny that there are racial inequalities, but rather that they explain those racial inequalities uh, through the lens, primary lens of, of poverty and class. So then the second part of the question is, how skeptical should we be of, of white pro protesters and their support? How do we understand their support? And so I think... Here, I do bring uh, some skepticism to, to, I guess, white racial solidarity in this area. White people have a bad track record of supporting previous movements for racial equality. But I think what, what you know, the task is now, um, I, we are seeing that there are attitudinal shifts among white people in terms of the extent to which they're supportive of the protesters. They're declining support for police. Those attitudinal changes are, are quite new and quite remarkable. And so what we need to continue to do or what activists and advocates can need to continue to do is they need to keep pushing for real substantive change and for, you know, the broader public to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to criminal justice reform. Weaver sees a flowering of activism and research ahead. I'm excited to see all the activism and I'm excited to see that uh, attention you know, among scholars is not, you know, there's a range of new questions that we're realizing that we didn't have answers to. 
And I think that the, that we're about to see just a flurry of really great work and theorizing and new questions. And I, I felt for many years that we were stuck, that, that, you know, there was just this incredible political knowledge with, that race class subjugated communities had, but that wasn't really being heard. And now it does seem like people, the mass public, journalists, academics, policymakers, now are hearing what has been said in Black communities for a very, very long time, what has been theorized, you know, in Black discourse for for at least a century. And, and now it remains to be seen whether, you know, this will have policy significance. And I think, I hope so. But Walker, drawing from Weaver's research, says we're still missing a big piece of political power by not fully understanding relationships with policing and criminal justice. Uh, Joe Sauce and Vesha Weaver's paper that was published in 2017, it's uh, does quite a good job of sort of illuminating what we're missing. You know, and so some of the things that we're missing are the political life worlds of a vast majority of the population, which, you know, looks a bit different than than what the political science literature has to say about the conditions under which people mobilize and what kinds of demands they make from their government. I think in that same, by that same token, what by not focusing on criminal justice and systems of punishment, we fundamentally misunderstand how power works in the United States and in American politics. I think that uh, uh, for the same reason that makes us a little bit blind to the limits of American democracy and the sort of fundamental inescapability of the ongoing impact and ongoing role and influence of settler colonialism and slavery on contemporary politics is very, what I don't think is very well understood in this particular moment. So this, in the last few years, especially since probably 2010 with Michelle Alexander's and New Jim Crow, I think we are starting to develop a broader understanding of the role that the criminal justice system plays in perpetuating inequality across a variety of dimensions. But what I, I don't think is very well understood still at this moment is just how intractable and excessively harsh our penal system really is and how mismatched the current system is to the sort of problems that we hope it will solve. So I think those are some of the big things we still are trying to grapple with, both as a field and as a, a public. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Please review our recent episodes at niskanencenter.org and anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks to Veshla Weaver and Hannah Walker for joining me. Please check out The Portals Project and Mobilized by Injustice, and then listen in next time.